0: this was always the hope that we would understand the neurodegenerative process in enough detail that we could actually translate this. So it has to say the best thing about this has been seeing people get better, having wonderful emails and wonderful phone calls and reports from people who have gotten better. It's just been great. And let's take this so that the whole world, we reduce the global burden of dementia. That's the key.
1: Hi everyone, Dr. Anna Kabeca here. I am thrilled to be with you. I am the Girlfriend Doctor and it's my mission and my passion to help women live better lives before, during and after menopause. So welcome to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. It is an intimate place for intimate conversation and I am here for you. You can ask or tell me anything for sure. And I've gotten so many questions lately about Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's prevention, dementia issues, concern about brain fog, some timers, and so much else going on. So I'm going straight to the experts in today's discussion on brain health as we age, especially considering Alzheimer's effects as much as over two times as many women as men. So we as women have to be even more proactive and taking as many preventive measures as we can understanding the risk today i'm bringing you a renowned physician dr dale bredesen he is an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as alzheimer's disease and he's the author of the new york times bestseller The End of Alzheimer's, published in 2017. And his newest release in 2020, the end of Alzheimer's program, the first protocol to enhance cognition and reverse decline at any age. The principles in here, if I don't say so myself, are quite keto green. It's nice to really just see this uh, in print, plus so much additional information he's given, especially where it comes to the health of our brains. Dr. Bredesen, he held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, University of California, San Diego, and directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before coming to the Buck Institute in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. They're doing some amazing work at the Buck Institute and I really am am thrilled to be talking with him today. So I know you'll have questions and comments and definitely want to share this episode. So join me in welcoming Dr. Dale Bredesen. Welcome, Dale, to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. It's nice to have you here, Dr. Bredesen, with all of us and my audience. We have been wanting to hear from you for so long.
0: Thanks so much, Anna. Thanks for having me.
1: First, congratulations on this amazing book, The End of Alzheimer's Program.
0: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, After the first book, uh, everybody was asking for details, workarounds, websites, where do you go, how do you cook it, what do you do, et cetera. And so very excited, worked actually with Julie G, who is a, a user and biohacker who's doing tremendously well herself, and also my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine-Bredesen, who is an integrative physician. And so we had a clinician and a scientist and a user, a daily user, and we got a really, that way, a really different look at how, how do you do all this? How do you make it practical?
1: And it is. It's very practical. It's a fabulous reading. It is fabulous reading because you also infuse humor. That, I've enjoyed that in the titles of everything. I mean, just so much creativity, humor. And I have highlighted all through the book too, just with such good information, as well as graphics. Now we do have something in common. I don't know if you know this, but um, Dr. Perlmutter also wrote the foreword to my book, Keto Green 16.
0: Ah, I did not know that. That's,
1: uh, That's nice. I mean, he's one of the people that I admire most in the world. I've been following his work for... Uh, over a decade, and I've just been thrilled. Now, you this you are not new to the study of brain health and Alzheimer's. Will you give your history a little bit for us?
0: Sure, yeah. So I trained as a neurologist and neuroscientist, and uh, we spent 30 years in the laboratory, published 227 papers, and the whole idea was the the area of neurodegeneration, as you know, is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everybody knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So it's really been difficult. And so the idea was, I wanted to go into the laboratory full-time, and which we did for 30 years, as I mentioned. And the idea was, could we understand the molecular underpinnings of the degenerative process. Why do you get Alzheimer's? Why is it so common? Why do you get ALS? Why do you get frontotemporal dementia? And as we went along, we started to see something very different about this disease. People have been saying, let's get rid of that amyloid. Let's get rid of that amyloid. But that's actually not how the disease works. This disease, as I mentioned in the book, is really a protective response. You make that amyloid because... It is antimicrobial. It kills bacteria, it kills spirochetes, it kills viruses, it kills fungi. So you're really protecting yourself. And you know, Anna, what really came out of this It was so interesting, it's very much like what we saw with COVID-19. So with COVID-19, what did they tell us? They said, get indoors, you want a social distance, you want a shelter in place, Don't get out there because you have an insult. In this case, SARS-CoV-2. Well, in Alzheimer's, you have an insult as well, but it's any of many different insults from insulin resistance to herpes simplex to P. gingivalis and on and on. And your brain is saying, okay, we have an insult. I'm going to spew out this amyloid because I'm trying to deal with that insult. But in so doing, I am downsizing. Just as we've ended up with a recession in the US because everything has downsized, That's the problem in the brain, very much like COVID-19. And so the brain actually downsizes in response to these insults. So if you're going to treat this, you have to first figure out what are the insults for each person that are driving this. And then you've got to get rid of the insult and then begin to build back. You're really changing a synaptoblastic to synaptoclastic ratio, much as you would do with osteoporosis, where you want to increase the osteoblastic activity and decrease the osteoclastic activity. This is synaptoblastic and synaptoclastic, but same idea. And so that was the whole goal of the lab. And it took us 30 years, unfortunately I was slow. And we finally got to the point where we could start to see, okay, maybe we could translate this into something for humans. We worked on mice, we worked on cells, we worked on fruit flies, all of this stuff. And then I was really excited to see the very first patient back in 2012 actually get better. And I was just shocked. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. You know, we're, we're going in the right direction here. So now there are thousands of people who are on the protocol, and it comes directly from the test tube.
1: And then some, right, those initial experiments and individual cases and just that skill of observation okay what we're doing is not working this you know attacking the amyloid or targeting drugs for amyloid and you put like this cemetery in the <laughs> um in the book like this picture of the cemetery it's all the drugs that have been used for alzheimer's right and what we see and and this is what's really interesting because you you know you talk about this recession right the this shrinkage, right? It's the brain is starving because of insulin resistance, as well as, you know, chemical toxicity and other pathogens and addressing oral health and oral, you know, microbes in your book. And I haven't seen, I've seen very few other resources address that. And I I think that's just such an important part of health and to see it tie in directly to Alzheimer's.
0: Absolutely. And that's the thing that there are dozens and dozens of these different contributors, and you've got to sort them out, identify them and attack those while you are building things back. And of course, hormonally, trophic factor-wise, nutrient, as you mentioned, starving. We find a lot of people who have low nocturnal oxygenation. In fact, there's a wonderful study that showed a direct correlation between your mean SpO2 while you sleep. So wherever you are, you should be up at 96 to 98, but so many people are down at 92, 90, 88. There's a direct correlation between that and and the size of specific nuclei within the brain. So as your oxygen goes down, so does your brain volume.
1: And also that, you know, decrease in quality sleep is associated also with insulin resistance.
0: Absolutely.
1: Obesity and and these issues. I've got to read this one paragraph from your book. May I? Okay, by Dr. Dale Bredesen, right, right from our book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. So I love this chapter. So just as there were global projects to vaccinate against smallpox, so should there be global projects to prevent and reverse cognitive decline, utilizing the 21st century vaccine. This is the way to eradicate the very illnesses that are killing us today, complex chronic diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, macular degeneration, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, type 2, diabetes, cancer, and on and on. These should all be and all can be rare diseases instead of the ubiquitous contributors to our ill health that they represent today.
0: Absolutely. And as you know, We did very well as physicians in the 20th century going after simple diseases like pneumococcal pneumonia, tuberculosis, diphtheria. Those are really past scourges. And the idea of this book is that Alzheimer's can be and should be a past scourge. Uh, This will ultimately be registered as really mainly a 20th century disease because of all the exposures we have, because of all the things that we're doing incorrectly, because of all the the various things that we're not identifying and treating. When we do that, this should be a past disease. But as I mentioned, it's not a vaccine like you go get an injection. It's a personalized precision medicine program that we talk about there because you have to go after the things that are actually causing it. I mean, how crazy is that? People have been trying to treat Alzheimer's for years by giving something that is a predetermined single drug. So if you think back to the 1600s and the 1700s, people died all the time of the diagnosis fever. So they'd say, oh, what did he die of? He died of fever or she died of fever. Well, what would you do if you were trying to develop a drug for fever? I mean, you might think about penicillin. You might think about aspirin. You might think about water. Maybe this person is dehydrated. I mean, there are dozens of things you could think about, but it's different. Fever comes from different places. And that's the same situation we're in with Alzheimer's. It comes from all sorts of different contributors. So the idea of blindly throwing a single drug at it really makes no sense.
1: No, not at all. And I think that's you, know, you you do state that so well in the in this book with so many examples. I mean, I you know, I just have loved also the images again that you talk about. But it's, you know, addressing the multiple targets, the multiple foci and, and to address like, you know, creating the end of Alzheimer's, like how can we, what are the steps that we need to take to create end of Alzheimer's and why, and I I love this area of research as far as the woman's brain, why women, I would love you to address this, Dr. Bredesen, why women have over twice the risk of Alzheimer's as men.
0: That's a very good point. And you know, as Maria Shriver has pointed out, this is a woman-centric disease. Women represent, as you said, about two to one for males. It's the opposite for Parkinson's. It's about 1.8 to one for men. So women represent about twice as many of the patients. And they also represent about 60% of the caregivers. So they're really disproportionately affected. And there are a couple of reasons that that may be the case. Nobody knows for sure, but part of the answer seems to be that when you change hormonal levels, so again, as you said, this is an insufficiency, was what it comes down to. You don't have enough of stuff, hormones, nutrients, trophic factors to support the demand of these 500 trillion synapses that you have inside your skull, just an amazing supercomputer. So with men, as you know, the androgen tends to go down like this over the years. With women, for many people, it tends to the estrogen tends to go down like this. So there is a sudden, relatively sudden loss. And that is one of the things that seems to enhance the likelihood. And then no surprise, if you have BHRT at the appropriate time, in fact, you reduce your risk quite remarkably. And unfortunately, of course, with the WHI results from years ago, everybody's very afraid about about that area. But there's no question, there are studies from Stanford and numerous other places. And Dr. Anne Hathaway, uh, who uh, works with me on the town halls, is a real expert in this area and shows that, in fact, if you have BHRT, your risk goes way down.
1: Let me just clarify for listeners, BHRT, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Right. identical. You. That's key. Key word there. B-H-R-T. Thank you, Dr. Reddison.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So you're really preventing that sudden decline that otherwise happens. Uh, and then the other thing that has come up is we've seen many, many people. It's interesting. When I was training, I never saw people in their 50s with Alzheimer's disease. We would see people in their 70s, 80s. You know, we used to think of this as a disease of your 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's really a disease it starts 20 years before that. So it's really a disease of your 40s, 50s, and 60s that we diagnose 20 years after that. But now we're seeing women, especially, in their late 40s, early 50s, so many 52-year-old, 53-year-old women who come in with very significant Alzheimer's disease. And what turns out is that when you, as you know, when you go through menopause, you have this osteoclastic burst So for about seven years or so, you are now releasing the very toxins that you have sequestered over the years in your bones and other organs. You're now re-releasing these back into the bloodstream. So your mercury level can bump up again, your organic toxin level can bump up again, and other toxins that can bump up during that time. Furthermore, as you know, the progesterone often goes down more so, so that you have this estrogen dominant period. And progesterone is a critical part of your detox apparatus. So when your progesterone goes very low, you are now losing that nice ability for detoxification. So for all those reasons, it seems that this is a more common problem in women.
1: Well, I I have found this has been so interesting for me, and I share these stories in my books, The Hormone Fix and Keto Green Sixteen. Just from my, like at you know, my second menopause, I'll say was at forty eight. I'm fifty four now, with a twelve year old. I'm on the road with her on the rodeo, by the way. People that have been following me on social media, we've seen a lot of horses lately. But you know, at, at 48, I was really struggling with that brain fog. You know, I had the weight gain despite not doing anything different. And I had the brain fog, which, you know, as a physician relying on my you know, really good memory to have such a like cognitive impairment, honestly. Is probably was more distressing, or at least as distressing as the weight loss, as the weight gain and hair loss. So that's a terrible thing to experience. But what I found, and the same thing, in like stumbling into my keto greenway, like your keto flex twelve three program, does even more is is just recognizing that critical importance of shifting from using glucose for fuel to ketones for fuel, and then finding some research that was published in twenty sixteen. That showed that gluconeogenesis—I mean, gluconeogenesis in the brain and the muscle—and you know is estrogen dependent. But and so we're actually starving. Women's brains are starving for fuel from the hormonal decline we're experiencing. So it's a fuel problem for for during this transition, as well as the increase in toxins
0: and this is one of the things that we're seeing frequently that really hasn't been dealt with sufficiently in the past in a standard medical care. So what happens think about if you have an outpost so Dr. Anna Quebeca now you've got your right hand person and she is out you know in Alaska somewhere you have got to get to her you've got to get food you've got to get water and you've got to have You've gotta make it all the way there. You can't drop it halfway off. It's gotta go all the way there. So the same thing is happening in these brains. You have to have the blood flow to get there. And so many people are not getting it. They're not getting the blood flow to these. They've got some vascular disease. They've got a sedentary lifestyle. They're simply not moving the cargo. Second thing, you've got to have the oxygen there. And we mentioned that earlier, but this is true during the daytime as well as the night. You've got to get the oxygen there. And then the third thing is you have got to get the ketones there. So you've actually got to get fuel. And of course, you also have to have trophic factors and hormones and things like that to make the system work. What's happening with so many of these people is they're not getting that combination there. So what happens? They, the brain says, okay, I'm gonna have to live as a little bit smaller brain. I'm gonna have to get give up some of these synapses. And so we just see people are downsizing, downsizing. They can't remember the things they used to. They may have some brain fog. They can't do the calculations. They can't learn new things the way they used to. They can't organize the way they used to. We see the people presenting to us either with an amnestic approach, which is about two thirds of the patients, or a non-amnestic where they have executive dysfunction, problems with recognizing faces, things like that, word finding issues, stuff like that. So this is a critical piece and you need to make sure for each person that they are getting the appropriate nutrients, the appropriate blood flow, the appropriate oxygenation, the appropriate hormones to the entire brain. And
1: I love the work that Dr. Lisa Moscone is doing also on the XX brain, really looking at this. This is my argument, and this is, I discussed this with her too. I interviewed her on my podcast a while back. But if you look at that dip in the onset of symptoms during this perimenopausal time period, With the insufficiency of glucose metabolism in the brain, you cross over those two diagrams. What you see in this age, 35 to 55, that's your period of neuroendocrine vulnerability. It is young. It is super young. When we look at this, and and also you said too, those symptoms that we're experiencing, they're neurologic symptoms as well as the gynecologic symptoms. So everyone listening, your gynecologist needs a neurology you know, read, they need this book, The End of Alzheimer's and The End of Alzheimer's Program, both your books. But this is, I get so passionate about this because it was such a missing link for me to look at this neuroendocrine type period, the insomnia, the anxiety, irritability, the increase in divorce, y'all. I mean, physiology of divorce, there is one. So, you know, this is all happening during this time when the brain's, you know, struggling with these areas, not just right, the glucose utilization, but also are using, you know, shifting from the insulin resistance in the brain. Okay. Right. And getting the blood flow there, the oxygen there, improving the circulation to the brain as we need to all other areas of our body as well. But my big thing is here is that that dip that decline in glucose utilization in the brain follows the decline in progesterone. And since progesterone is a neuropeptide, is progesterone better, you know, would it be preferential than estrogen to start with in your opinion?
0: You know, that is a great point. The fact of the matter is the data so far, and I'm certainly, I would defer to Dr. Moscone, who's a far, and to you, far greater experts than I am in this area. But just from the standpoint of biochemistry and from the standpoint of what your brain needs, it turns out that the, the studies suggest that estradiol is actually, if anything, more critical than the progesterone. Now, the progesterone, definitely for people who are, who have toxic burdens, Progesterone is critical, but in general for memory, for supporting synapses, estradiol is actually more important. And interestingly, what happens, you can follow the molecular pathways. So the estrogen, as you know, binds to its receptors and these then enter, this complex enters the nucleus and affects the production from hundreds of different genes, And interestingly, one of the genes that is upregulated by your estrogen in binding to your estrogen receptor is the alpha secretase, the very one that comes back and cleaves the amyloid precursor protein, the APP. So when you're sitting, this APP is sitting in your brain. This is a this is literally a molecular switch. When things are good, it is cut at the alpha site. You get two pieces: one for outside the cell, one for inside the cell. And they literally say things are good, Anna, go ahead and make new synapses, grow, you're going to make new memories, you're going to keep memories, etc. When things are bad, ongoing inflammations, pathogens, toxins, poor hormone support, etc. It gets cleaved at three different sites, beta, gamma, and caspase sites, producing four fragments, two for outside, two for inside, that come back and say, you've got to pull back, we are under assault. And just as you would in a country, we're now going to pull back and protect ourselves just as we're doing with COVID 19. So, estradiol has a direct impact through the alpha secretase to produce those two fragments that are all about growth of synapses and maintenance of synapses. So, definitely now, again, they're both important. But if you had to say one, then certainly for memory, it would be estradiol.
1: And this is where, you know, because, you know, look at the research in this and then, you know, compare that to my clinical experience. I know I always wanna put a red flag when someone says that, but in working with women with bioidentical hormones over the decades, when I had patients who had had a hysterectomy and they only came in on estrogen, right? Even estradiol, other than Premarin, right? We had them on estrogen and I added progesterone. Universally, everyone came in and said, I feel like a fog has lifted. I think better, I'm clearer. And so
0: You need both. And we ran into the same thing, by the way, one of the very first patients who went on this protocol, it was the one issue. She said, well, you know, I'm a little bit better, but things aren't great yet. And it turned out she had a very high estradiol to progesterone ratio. So she basically had progesterone insufficiency. And when we simply balanced that and gave her the appropriate ratio, she said, oh, yeah, the fog is lifted. I'm so much better now. Now, interestingly, she showed up a year later and said, wait a minute, things are not so good again. And it turned out that her estradiol had been changed from transvaginal to transdermal and when it had been changed nobody bothered to check the levels her level on transdermal was zero and she interestingly she kept a diary and she could show about a month after she got she switched to the transdermal and was just unfortunately not getting any absorption she ended up having some cognitive decline again so you really do have to follow the levels you really do have to make sure that people are optimized and as you said getting that right, correct ratio, having both is really helpful, especially I think for people who are trying to detox because it's such a critical part of that.
1: Yeah. And I want to talk more about progesterone and detox too, because I, I love bringing this in together. And just to let clients know too, we are talking about bioidentical progesterone, not progestins. And there are many varieties of progestins, pregnane or pregnane. you know, maybe a whole bunch of derivatives. But regardless, they're synthetic, they're not identical to progesterone. And that's what we really want to address. And there are bioidentical prescription forms like Prometrium now there, it's generic. So bioidentical progesterone and compounded forms of progesterone. So orally, transdermally, vaginally, those are ways to have it. And to, I recommend that, as part of a healthy hormonal pro, especially for those of us over 50. I'm like, who needs progesterone? Pretty much those of us over 50, for sure. If we're not on it by then, I don't know. What's your opinion, Dr. Bredesen? We always want to treat individuals individually, but.
0: Yeah, I have to say from everything we've seen neurologically, I'm a very strong believer in BHRT and starting it right around the time of perimenopause or menopause. Um, and continuing. And the big issue has been, what if no one started and they come in and they're 70 and they're having cognitive decline? And I know this is a controversial area. And we always say of all the areas, this is probably the most controversial. And Dr. Hathaway, who has, uh, has really studied the literature carefully, argues that in fact, it, it, it can be helpful for cognition, even into your seventies, eighties, and nineties. So her argument is that uh, actually this is when with respect to cognition, and again, remember, we're not dealing with someone who's asymptomatic. We're typically dealing with someone who had already has some symptoms unless they're, they're purely for prevention. But as you indicated, you can see changes on the PET scan In the 30s and 40s, so you're really this isn't a we always think of this as an an energetic emergency. There's an ongoing problem. It's as if you're being strangled lightly. You have got to do something about that. Don't sit around and wait for the strangling to get worse and worse and worse. You have got to you know reply to that and respond to it. So yeah, I I have to say I'm a big fan uh, of BHRT. I recognize there are issues, there are side effects that can be there, and of course, there are ways you can take care of this. And a number of people have said to me, "Look, I'd rather check myself and make sure that I'm not developing, for example, a tumor, uh, and have better cognition than to allow myself to descend into Alzheimer's disease." And I think that's a, it's a fair point.
1: Yeah, it is a fair point, and I, you know, I like how you said "energetic emergency." because we're energetic beings and our neurotransmitters are energetic molecules. Our hormones are energetic molecules. And, and to, you know, I would say we're just beginning to understand hormones because they're energetic molecules and we really don't have a pure way, perfect way of testing them. That's why we look at blood, saliva, urine, you know, we're looking at everything, right? We want to look at hormones everywhere. So I think that's an important point to make too.
0: Exactly. And this is, you know, our mitochondria are trying to do the best they can for us as our batteries basically to keep things rolling. But if we're not optimizing them, if we're not getting the right fuel to them, if we're not getting the right trophic support, I mean, interestingly, the amyloid beta itself is a mitotoxin. So it's actually turning down. It's really saying to you, we're going to pull in everything. We're going to try to live with a smaller brain. And as long as you don't address those things that are causing this, it will just keep doing that and say, okay, smaller brain, smaller brain, smaller brain, Till, as you know, you get to the point you can't dress yourself. You can't speak. It's really horrible to see this and to watch people watching their patients go downhill without even checking these things just kills me.
1: I was just wanting to laugh when you said you can't dress yourself. I know I'm in like a, you know, a t-shirt today, Dr. Bredesen. I'm kidding.
0: That's COVID-19 related. That has nothing to do with your mitochondria. That's
1: right. Right. I got to keep my mitochondria healthy. (laughs) But, but it's so true. And these limitations start in many ways and it's never, I love what you said, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, it's never too late. I've had clients on hormones in their 90s. And so but naturally like i my clients over 50 i'm switching to transdermal transvaginal transdermal i mean you know or or injected but bypassing the oral route or sometimes i do troches as well in a healthier client.
0: Yeah. Yeah, these are all critical obviously. Again, we can see literally see this synaptoblastic to synaptoclastic ratio, the ability to make and keep synapses versus the pulling back. And we're all pulling back. It's a normal thing where you're saying, okay, uh, you know, you're going to forget actively the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday. We're keeping our most important information. And what's interesting, someone asked me years ago, why is it that memory goes first in these people? That's such an important thing. But if I said to you, okay, Anna, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you can either lose the ability to speak, the ability to do your work, calculate, figure out new things, or you can forget the Friends rerun from tonight. It's an easy choice. And so your brain has collected so many important memories that this is one of the reasons that Alzheimer's takes so long for a diagnosis, because you can function so well with what you've already learned that the first thing that is sacrificed as you're now downsizing is the ability to learn new things. So that's really the canary in the mind. Anyone who's having trouble learning new things in any way, jump on this, please get, you know, get evaluated, get on optimal treatment because people who are early on, very easy to treat. And we see all of those people, virtually all of them to reverse improvement in their symptoms.
1: Uh, And that's so encouraging because I know it is something that people really worry about. And that's where we're going to go into your program some more. But this is an area where APOE carriers, we can talk about that. And we're afraid of ketogenic diets. And yours is definitely a ketogenic, a healthy, very healthy ketogenic approach. I do want to go some vocabulary real quick, too, for our listeners. Trophic meaning hormone, hormonal related And um, one thing you said earlier was about with menopause, you have this osteoclastic burst, this osteoclastic burst. So can we talk about that too? The breaking down, eating up, demineralization process that we're experiencing and how that plays into Alzheimer's again, please?
0: Absolutely. So just imagine you've got a house and you've got contractors who are doing only the building, Those are the osteoblastics guys, osteoblasts. And then you've got contractors that do all of the demolition. And imagine that for 20 years, the ones that did the building never showed up. The ones that did the demolition always did a little extra for you. Your house would shrink, shrink, shrink. That's what happens to your bones in osteoporosis. And it is what happens to your brain in synaptoporosis, which is Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a synaptoporosis and some of the same things. Like estradiol and progesterone are involved in this. And by the way, vitamin D, another good example. Vitamin D, very important for osteoporosis, very important for Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, people who have specific SNPs in the vitamin D receptor have an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. People who are very low in their vitamin D have an increased risk, not only for poor outcomes with COVID 19, but also for Alzheimer's disease. So these are all critical. And you mentioned trophic as hormonal. And yes, anything that supports growth and maintenance. And there are non-hormonal trophic factors, nerve growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, things like that. And then, of course, there are also nutrients that are important, that are trophic in their activities, like vitamin D, like vitamin B12, things like that. And anti-nutrients, homocysteine, which as it goes up, your brain shrinks. So again, these are all targets. And in fact, high homocysteine, another risk for Alzheimer's disease, another thing that should be addressed.
1: And I think that's key. One of the, there's so much, I I could keep you on all day for sure. And I'm gonna do the best I can (laughs) to let you go at some point. But um, one thing that you wrote in your book, and I also do recommend testing in my books, The Hormone fix. but I love that you put target values here. And what I was surprised uh, with homocysteine I always thought optimal homocysteine is six to eight. So, you know, six to eight is the optimal homocysteine. And you you put in less than or equal to seven micromoles per liter.
0: Yeah. And six to eight is so close. I, I don't worry about that. I worry about the people who show up with 12, 15, 20, 30. And we've seen all of those. And here's the thing. The reason I put less than seven, this is, and I think I referenced that, that. So there's a wonderful paper from the UK that showed, literally followed people over years. And what they showed was a beautiful correlation, unfortunately, as your homocysteine hits seven and above, and it really goes up when it hits 13 and above, the rapidity over the years with which your gray matter declines and atrophies goes up directly. So the higher your homocysteine is, the more your gray matter is shrinking over time. And then they did the really nice study of saying, okay, what if we brought everyone down to six or seven? And so you can do that, of course, with methylfolate, with methyl B12, uh, with P5P, those sorts of things. So they brought everybody's down, and then they continued to follow them, and they saw no further atrophy. So it really was a nice compound study where they're looking both at association and causality and just showing that bringing that down. So that's why we, took, we say, you know, try to get it below seven if you can. That's from the UK study. But we don't worry about people who are at seven or eight. It's so right. close. We worry about the high ones and we see it all the time. And so you need to address that because it has multiple mechanisms, high homocysteine, multiple mechanisms by which it helps to shrink your brain.
1: Yes. Yeah. And just a big shout out, anyone who's had preeclampsia or eclampsia make sure you've checked your homocysteine levels as well as something called adma because that you know is also a marker of methylation defect and can increase your risk of alzheimer's i want to just go over those treatments because i know i'll get this out people will be writing in to me so for a high homocysteine methylated folate not folic acid right dale
0: Exactly. So you want methylated folate. And, you know, people use anything up to 15 milligrams. We usually recommend anywhere around one milligram. You could go up to five if you want. In the British study, they used 0.8. So all of those are in the ballpark. The main thing is follow up your homocysteine, make sure you're having the appropriate effect. Now I should mention, there's a big caveat here. Occasionally, it's not terribly common, but it's typically with people with COMT SNPs, as you know, which have poor metabolism, that you don't have the appropriate hydroxylation, basically. So you're not metabolizing appropriately. They can actually have hypermethylation. Now, the difference is they usually don't have high homocysteines, But for those few people who may, you may find that if you now go on the methylated folate and methylated B12, you get some anxiety. And if you do that, fine, just use switch to hydroxocobalamin. use the non forms. It's not a big problem. But if you do happen to know that it's not terribly common, but we run into it every now and then.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And then many people getting B12 injections are getting cyanocobalamin.
0: Yes. And again, yeah, we recommend methylcobalamin. And typically you want to be around one milligram of methylcobalamin. That typically gets your levels up. And, you know, the levels you want to get uh, and this gets back to what you said earlier, which I think is such an important point, which is that what people have told us is within normal limits means nothing. All it is, it is statistical. So you take the mean, you take a lot of people, you measure them, and you say, we want you within two standard deviations of the mean. That has nothing to do with physiology. So physiologically, we want the optimal. And we don't, in some cases, we don't know the optimal. So we want to at least get you to the mean, or if it's a, a positive effect or something above the mean. And simple example, where if you look at B12, great example, where the, the, norm, the norm is 200 to 900. Now they've adjusted that a little. Now they're coming up a little. But they also say under there, be careful, you can actually get diseases. So you can die of pernicious anemia with a normal B12, for example, of 300. So it's clearly not optimal if someone can die with that level. Clearly, we wanna make sure that people are above 500 on their B12 levels.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And don't, again, if we're listeners, don't expect your insurance company to pay for much of this that we're talking about because let me tell you, I had the experience in medical practice where I was giving methylcobalamin shots to clients to optimize B12, as well as treat neurologic issues, hormonal imbalance, support detoxification. And Blue Cross Blue Shield, that big old uh, provider, came and, and basically told me that giving B12 injections for anyone who's not diagnosed with pernicious anemia, they could say that I'm practicing a fraud, like fraudulent medicine. And, and it, was, it was shocking. I was like, could you please say that again? And the same with repeat vitamin D testing. So many of us in the functional medicine space have gone to cash-based practices because we don't need big box, you know, companies telling us how to practice medicine when we're doing this. And that was that was, you know, maybe they've changed their mind. That was 2010. So, um, but it's it's infuriating. I love how you say in here target values or optimal values, target values. The other, um, you know, and you've got so many great. You, you cover all the tests in here, but also you talk about hemoglobin A1C. And I kind of wanted to protest this one. I always say 4.8 to 5.3, you dropped it down to four. And I like my, I like my metabolic flexibility, my feasting. So like I have
0: 4.8. Yeah, no. And, and again, we, uh, what we're saying there is great to be at 5.0, great to be at four. Those are absolutely fine. Um, and I think we took it in there up to 5.3. So, yeah, great to be in that ra- range. We're just saying there are a few people who then wrote in and said, well, wait a minute. You know, when we when we've mentioned this before, they wrote in and said, well, wait a minute. I'm doing everything right. And mine's at 4.5. I'm not OK. No, you're fine. So there are going to be those few people. But you're right. Listen, I'm when I see someone at 5.0, 5.1, I'm thrilled. That's where we love to see them. But if, we're not going to get upset if someone's way down at four and at f- 4.5. They happen to be really strict. Great. The ones I worry about are the ones who say, well, I'm at 5.6 and my doctor said, that's fine. That's not fine. You know, you're right there knocking on the door of prediabetes. You are, and especially looking at your HOMA IR, that's another big one. So, you know, you can simply take your glucose and take your fasting insulin and multiply those, divide by 405.45, you'll get what's your HOMA IR. And we like to see people around 1.0 as they're drifting up to two and two and a half, even 1.7, 1.8, they are becoming insulin resistant. And as you indicated earlier, your brain is dependent on this insulin. When we, for the years and years we grew brain cells in a dish, you always had to include insulin in the dish to get them to survive. Insulin is such a critical growth and survival factor for brain cells. So as you become insulin resistant, you can actually see that biochemically. You change the phosphorylation pattern of your IRS-1, your signaling molecule downstream from your insulin receptor. What does that do? It turns down the response. So as you indicated, you really get resistant to this and you don't have that nitrophic support that is normally provided by insulin.
1: Ah, Good, good stuff. So much good information. Now, I wanted to talk about APOE because we were, you know, we have clients that have APOE and they say, well, can I do, you know, in my program, can we do keto green? Can we do keto? And you talk about that in your book too.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. And, And APOE is something that everyone should be aware of. And again, everything's been turned upside down. People have said, you know, the standard of care, no reason to check your APOE status because there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is a tremendous amount. The armamentarium we now have for prevention and reversal of cognitive decline, both in APOE 4 positive individuals and negative, is huge. So everybody should know. So here's the thing. Uh, ApoE is this remarkable thing. It was thought to be like your butcher. It's the guy that carries around the fat, right? It's a apolipoprotein. So it is a protein that carries fat globules around to your body. Now, what the heck does that have to do with Alzheimer's disease? Well, it turns out to be a remarkable, remarkable gene our simian forebears did not have APOE4. They had APOE chimp, basically. And as as the hominids appeared between five and seven million years ago, there was this new APOE with mutations, changes from, the, from previous. And there are specific mutations that allow this to be more pro-inflammatory, unfortunately. So what happened when we went from simians to hominids we became more inflammatory beings. And as has been pointed out by Professor Tuck Finch at USC, this is probably because you know we, had to, we came down out of the trees, we're walking around on the savanna, we're puncturing our feet, we're exposed to microbes like never before, we're eating raw meat, which otherwise would give us all sorts of pathogens. And interestingly, in third world countries, you still live longer if you've got ApoE4. So that's the primordial one, that was the original ApoE. That now, if you have zero copies of that one, so everybody's got two copies of something, there's APOE4, APOE3, which just occurred 220,000 years ago, and APOE2, which just appeared 80,000 years ago. Now, most people are now APOE33, that's what I am. For example, I checked myself, and but 75 million Americans, so about a quarter of the population, has one copy of ApoE4. Seven million Americans, about 2% of the population, just over 2%, has two copies. If you have zero copies, your chance during your lifetime of getting Alzheimer's disease, about 9%. It's not zero, but it's relatively low. If you have a single copy, it's about 30%. If you have two copies, it's well over 50%. More likely than not, you will develop Alzheimer's. Okay. None of these people should develop Alzheimer's. We need to get everybody on prevention. And this is why it's great to check. Now, as you mentioned, it changes your metabolism. And what we discovered and published a number of years ago in our laboratory experiments, this stuff that is thought to be your butcher that carries around the fat, guess what else it does? It actually goes inside the nucleus of the cell, binds to pro-inflammatory factors such as REL-A and changes the production of 1,700 different genes. So the guy that we thought was your butcher is also your senator. He's also making the laws of the land, changing the programming of your entire cell. So it's an incredibly important protein that's that's, moving around here. Now, what you alluded to earlier is people often question, should I get on a ketogenic diet? Because they don't want to take fat. All right. Here's the trick. It's fine to have it's fine to have monounsaturates and polyunsaturates. So what you want to do is you don't want a bacon rich ketogenic diet. You want a plant rich, just like keto green. You want a plant rich ketogenic diet. And by the way, you also want the fiber that you get from those plants. So that is fine. And again, we have one of the three authors with me on this book, Julie G, is an ApoE44 herself, who has you know, monounsaturates, polyunsaturates, eats a plant-rich ketogenic diet and has fabulous lipid numbers and fabulous hemoglobin A1c. She's doing absolutely great. Now, for those who are just starting out, just take some exogenous ketones. You want to stay away from coconut oil if you're ApoE4 positive. And just take some, you know, you can take ketone esters, ketone salts, um, there's one that I happen to like, which is called KE1, but whatever, whatever you like, take some exogenous ketones. And then in the long run, we want to get you on endogenous ketosis to be able to generate them from your own fat, because that's, that has some advantages that you don't get with exogenous ketosis.
1: Let's talk about that because I always hear, and I say, well, exogenous ketones as a crutch, to get you sustaining your intermittent fasting, to help with hunger, to improve willpower, but not for the long haul. So can you talk about that too? And thank you for the discussion on APOE4 and in this area, like the fear of elevated lipids. And I would say, let's watch it you know we're going to watch and follow this plan let's watch it because pretty much universally i've seen improvements in fatty liver improvements in lipids you know improvements and and in, in just all all the way around the board so
0: absolutely and you know one of the things that we've noticed with people who go on the protocol that we have for for cognition they actually get off their antihypertensives they get off their statins they get off their anti-diabetic drugs so that they get rid of their metabolic syndrome related problems they are doing better with burning of fat and as you indicated it's best to have endogenous ketosis but at the beginning the point is as we talked about earlier this is an emergency literally your your brain is being strangled. So we want to get the blood flow, we want to get the oxygenation, and we want to get the ketones there. We want to support that. You can literally see on a PET scan, I mean, the, the hallmark of Alzheimer's when a neuroradiologist looks at your PET scan is to say there is reduced glucose utilization in your temporal lobe and your parietal lobe. That L- That is the hallmark of Alzheimer's. And in ApoE4 positive individuals, those changes can begin in their 20s, even though the diagnosis may not occur till your 50s, 60s, or 70s. So we want to address that energy gap as quickly as possible. Then over the long run, there are additional advantages. And one of them, for example, was published recently showing that when you exercise, you're actually getting improvements in the brain in a number of areas. But without even, even though you may not change blood access. Now, of course, you're getting improved blood flow, et cetera. But there are other things. There are soluble factors, for example, production of ketones that are actually happening. So ultimately, you want to make your own. Uh, because there are, there are even, because again, there are advantages to endogenous ketosis. One of the things also, it has a nice anti-inflammatory effect that is not nearly as pronounced with exogenous ketones. So, you know, address the gap immediately by giving yourself the energy, but over the long haul, get into the better way to produce ketones, which is endogenously.
1: And and there, like that effect, there is, a, there is a difference. And you talk about this too. I want to, um, you to introduce your keto flex 123 program.
0: Yeah, and again, the the here's the idea, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm a neur- neuroscientist. So we're simply looking at what is the best biochemistry we can get for you to make and keep synapses and to reverse. You're on the wrong side. Everybody we see who has cognitive decline is on the wrong side of that balance. We want to do everything possible to increase the synaptoblastic signaling and decrease the synaptoclastic signaling. And that's where we're seeing these just striking effects. So what is the diet that does that best for you? Okay. So this is, the, this is why we call it Ketoflex 12.3. You want to hit several parameters to get the best outcome with your neurochemistry. The first thing you want to do is you want it to be in mild ketosis. And typically, we recommend between 1.0 millimolar and 4.0 millimolar BHB. Now, you have to prick your finger to do that. So if you want to do a breathalyzer, you want to get, for example, Biosense has a nice breathalyzer that we've just evaluated recently and I'm not paid anything by, by Biosense, but Biosense has one where they measure what they call ACEs because you're measuring acetone. You want to be above seven on the ACEs there, which is equivalent to the 1.0 to 4.0, even above 10, hopefully. So you want to get yourself, that's the first piece. You want to have a ketotic, a ketogenic diet. Second piece is, it's flexitarian. Now I realize flexitarian has very specific meaning. So a flexitarian is not allowed to eat no meat. That's not the way we were using it here. The way we were saying here is, if you wanna be a vegetarian, fine, no problem. By the way, vegetarians have higher homocysteines. Please check your homocysteine. Please make sure to get it down. Uh, You gotta check your vitamin D and things like that. But the bottom line is fine to be a vegetarian or a vegan, it's fine. This is a flexible diet. Uh, you can have some. Uh, you can have some meat. You have some protein. Have some pastured eggs. Have some grass-fed beef. Have smashed fish. You know, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Those are all great. Don't have the high mercury fish. They are actually damaging your brain. Mercury is one of the best ways to produce an Alzheimer's state. Literally, you inject it into a brain. You get the plaques and tangles that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. So stay away from the high mercury fish. And then, so that's the keto flex piece, and then 12-3 means specifically you want a minimum of 12 hours between finishing dinner and starting breakfast, brunch, or lunch. So if you finish at you know 7.30, please don't eat breakfast before 7.30 a.m. If you're ApoE4 positive, you want to extend that to 14 to 16 hours because you are a better absorber of fats and it takes more time. During that time, you'll increase your ketones, you'll increase your autophagy, you'll allow your glymphatics to remove the debris, the damaged proteins, damaged lipids, damaged carbohydrates from your brain. So it's critical to get that in there. And as you know, just intermittent fasting has had so many positive things, improves your blood pressure, improves your detoxification, things like that. So that's the KetoFlex 12 and then Slash 3. You want to have at least three hours between when you finish your dinner and when you go to bed. So you don't want to eat right up until bed because you're spiking your insulin. One of the best things I think that's come along in the last few years is continuous glucose monitoring, CGM. Stick it on your arm or you stick it on your gut, on your belly, whichever you like, depends on whether you like the, you know, whether you like the Abbott one, the freestyle or whether you like the Dexcom, whatever you happen to like, fine people are seeing that when they spike their glucose, as you know, bad for your brain, but also when they then go to bed, it's drifting down and we have people who are reporting, oh yeah, I wake up every night in the middle of the night and guess what, my glucose is 45. So if you're not eating that high fat, high fiber diet that smooths out your glucose, then you're spiking it and now it's going down into the trough and both of those are horrible for your brain. You don't want to spike it up. You don't want it to go down rapidly. Wake you up in the middle of the night. You're literally, again, now you're back with an energy gap in the middle of the night. You want to smooth it out. So that's why we recommend Ketoflex 123. Don't get your insulin up right before you go to bed. Very bad idea for your brain. And I noticed, interestingly, there's just a paper published uh, on the Mediterranean diet, but they made a very important point when they saw improvement. It was then a quote, ketogenic variant of the Mediterranean diet. So the standard one isn't particularly good for putting you into ketosis. Ketosis is a critical part of best outcomes for neural connectivity. So that's why KetoFlex 12.3, it's essentially figured out and focused on the biochemistry of synapses.
1: Yeah, no, and I would say, too, when we're looking at those Mediterranean diets, many of the, the religions and cultures have extended fasting built into their culture, right? I would say, you know, for Catholics, fasting until after communion and, and things like this. I mean, it was built into the culture to get into a, I mean, a ketotic state, which gives us this higher level of, of brain clarity and cognition and, and spiritual connection.
0: And people have noticed that for years and years and years. And of course, there's Ramadan, another example where people don't eat all day. So yes, you're right. Virtually every group has figured out, hey, there's something good about fasting.
1: I think you just gave me this great mnemonic to remember the fish that we're allowed to eat, smash fish, smash fish. So that was salmon, mackerel, anchovy, sardines, and herring.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Stay away from the large mouth, long live fish, the tuna fish, the swordfish, the shark. These are the guys that are high on the food chain and have been eaten away for years and years and have accumulated these very high levels of mercury. They're the ones that are very damaging.
1: When we're healthy, a little bit, right? That sea bass and tuna, oh my gosh, sushi all around.
0: So uh, I had a great uh, patient several years ago called me up and said, you know, I've just been given a diagnosis of early Alzheimer's and we went through his his story and I said, look, you know, you, you're in your early fifties. You sound like you have type three. So we have subgroups of the, of the Alzheimer's you can see with metabolic profiling. If you've got type three, that means that you have some toxin. Let's figure out what the toxin or toxins are. And so this guy, uh, you know, I can't. I live a really healthy life, etc. Well, it turned out this guy had been very successful as a businessman, and he decided he wanted to have tuna sushi multiple times every week. He also just turned out to have very poor detox apparatus, so he ended up having the highest mercury that the lab had seen. If you look at. 95th percentile. He had seven times the 95th percentile, just off the charts. And he's done well. And interestingly, then I told him, look, we're not done. We need to find other toxins. No, no, no. we, We found it. I'm on it. Well, it turned out he also ended up having high levels of mycotoxins. So two different toxins, both contributing to his cognitive decline. He already had a PET scan that was diagnostic for early Alzheimer's disease. And he's done very, very well by approaching, the correct things by getting the appropriate detox.
1: So as you say,
0: yeah, every once in a while, fine, absolutely but don't let yourself get, you know, don't don't let it go so much that it's actually building up and giving you brain problems.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the whole test, don't guess, right? And you talk about additional testing, testing for mercury, heavy metals, and how critically important that is. It's a topic we've covered in this podcast a little bit, but it is, you know, cannot, you know, emphasize how important it is to test and, and stool testing. So for our listeners, you know, I mean, functional medicine docs will, guide you in this testing. I mean it is it is important. One other thing that you talk about and I, I really like this that I, I I say this a lot. When we break fast, we want to detox we want a detoxing Beverage because our body, but I, we want to detoxify when we're breaking fast. Our body is detoxing all night, right? We are producing, releasing toxins. So, supporting it. I tell my clients when we wake up, a tall glass of alkaline water, you know, a shot of my Mighty Maca Plus, you know, just let's get these things in to detox the body. And you talk about this as well. Break the fast with a detoxifying beverage.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, some people like to use lemon water, some sort of citrus water, often a good way to go.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but just lemon water is not technically, I mean, you're still you're still producing ketones with lemon water.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're not, yeah, you're not, you're right. At that time, you're not breaking the fast. And again, as an example, we have a, a Julie writing in there about her own approach. She typically doesn't eat until about 1 or 2 p.m., Um, Now, some people that's a little too long for them, no problem, as long as you're getting yourself into some ketosis and yeah, you can liberalize once a week and cycle, no problem. So you're right when you, when you, you do want to think about what sorts of things can be detoxifying, you know, for years and years and years, I was taught the healthiest thing to do in the morning is you get up and you have a big glass of orange juice. And of course it turned out that's the worst thing I could have been doing because you know no better way to spike your glucose than to take a big slug of orange juice. And we had trees actually on our property. We would go out and take the orange trees and I just loved making this orange juice and would just drink it, you know, by the pint. Oh my gosh. You know, it, it just I finally realized how bad that actually was for me over those years. So you don't want to spike your glucose. That's the last thing you want to do in the morning.
1: Yeah. So then, you know, with that, when can you have orange juice?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. You got to be very careful because of the fact that it is such a high glycemic food. Preferably, you don't want to have orange juice. Preferably, you want to have low glycemic fruits. And as has been pointed out, you know, fruits were something that appeared at the end of the summer. You know, it's part of gaining weight. If you want to gain weight, that's when you want to have fruit. But if you're not wanting to gain weight, then you don't want to have a lot of fruit. If you're going to have some fine, have some berries, have some low glycemic fruit. So there's a really interesting paradox. If you look at human beings, you look at their dentition, you look at their jaw structure, you look at their GI tract, and you say, is this organism a carnivore or an herbivore. As you know, it's not really a carnivore. We don't have the gut of a cat. It's not really an herbivore. We're not like an ungulate either. It actually fits best with what's called a frugivore. So in fact, the, the paradox is we're constructed to eat fruits, but The problem is all the fruits we're now exposed to are extremely high in sugar because people want to sell fruit. They want to make money. They have bred these fruits, things like these various apples that are so high in sugar and oranges and things. So the paradox is we're here on earth to eat fruits, but not to eat the fruits that are currently on earth. That's the problem. And so we do need to go toward a low glycemic. That's what all the different diets agree on, that one fact. It's got to be low. Sugar is killing us. The exposure to processed foods is killing us. These are the things that are actually hurting us the most. And yet this is the way most of us are living. So as I mentioned in the book, the problem is that virtually our entire species is attempting to live in a way that we were not evolutionarily designed to live. And in so doing, we're creating hypertension, we're creating metabolic syndrome, we're creating Alzheimer's disease, we're creating leaky gut and just go right down the list.
1: Yeah. Just to wrap up, I want you to address oral hygiene and oral health and how that affects, because like, you know, you talk about root canals in the book and, and amalgam fillings, and that's delivering mercury to our brain. So what is one to do when you're at that point, you have a root canals and mercury fillings?
0: It's such a great point, actually. And, you know, uh, when pathologists look in the brains, they've been telling us for years two things about the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. The first thing that they told us is if you look at the brain, in fact, you ask, are there organisms in there when you have Alzheimer's? Guess what? They find all sorts of organisms. And Now, in fact, there's it's controversial still, but there's discussion about whether there is a normal microbiome for the brain something that shocks me because in medical school, of course, we were all taught the brain should be a sterile organ. Uh, So the, the jury's still out on this, but it's very clear that in Alzheimer's brains, you find P. gingivalis, from which is associated with periodontitis. You find F nucleatum, T denticola, P intermedia, all associated with periodontitis. You find herpes simplex 1 from the lip. You find HHB6A, which is another herpes family virus, which appears to come in through the sinuses. And interestingly, the pathologist, the second thing they told us that the distribution of Alzheimer's disease looks as if it's something that came in through your nose. So this whole area, rhinocinal and oral microbiome, is related to your brain. Who knew? So the idea that, oh my gosh, this stuff is communicating. Well, we now know the gut is communicating very clearly. Well, it turns out Oral and rhinocinal areas are also communicating with your brain. So, unfortunately, when you've got poor dentition, you are increasing your risk for cognitive decline. And there's something you can do it. You can do things, for example, like dental sidin, toothpaste, and mouthwash. There are also now probiotic toothpaste like Revitin and others that can improve your your microbiome. So uh, we recommend that people get oral DNA tests. Check to see what your microbiome is. And as you indicated, it's root canals, it's mercury, it's periodontitis, it's gingivitis, so-called leaky gums. So leaky gum syndrome, just like leaky gut syndrome. So all of these things are potential contributors to cognitive decline. Therefore, it's critical to deal with these. And you want to go to an appropriately trained dentist or so-called oral systemic specialist.
1: Biologic dentist. And, um, you know, this is such an important area. And you're talking about this rhinocinal area. I know that there's a lot of mycotoxins, right? Yeast, fungal sinus infections that are constantly treated with, you know, antibacterials or antibiotics. And also like the nasal sprays that are steroid nasal sprays that basically feed yeast, and I wondered your opinion on that.
0: Yeah, such an important point. And you know, an, an interesting study was done a couple, just a couple of years ago. With now this was a rodent study, but it was very implicative. So what they did was say, okay, the blood-brain barrier is supposed to keep all these things out. Let's just see what happens if Candida. Candida. We're all exposed to Candida. Candida gets into your bloodstream. Okay. And um, these, you know, these things again. You get these things in bloodstream all the time. You know, all sorts of things. Anything from a te- teeth cleaning and things like that will get various organisms into your bloodstream. And so the the thought was, okay, let's see how long the candida stays out from the blood brain barrier. Well, it turns out the candida crossed the blood brain barrier immediately. And it's set up, and so the brain responded, said, ah, I'm being invaded. And guess what it did? It began, it looked like the earliest changes of Alzheimer's disease. So literally, again, we are responding to these ongoing threats and ongoing insults on a daily basis. And you mentioned the molds and mycotoxins. When we first came up with the protocol to reverse cognitive decline, there was a group of patients that just simply didn't respond. And we were wondering, they look different. They, they, they were different age. They, they tended to be on the younger side. Um, they tended to have a non-amnestic presentation. They often had some depression as part of their presentation. And I remembered years ago, having seen something actually on an ID channel on television about a man who became demented because he was exposed to stachybotrys. And I thought, you know, is it possible these people who are not responding, maybe these are people who are toxic. So we started talking to the spouses and started measuring the various toxin levels. And sure enough, These are the people that turned out to have what we now call type three toxic Alzheimer's disease. And there are the toxins, as you know, three groups of toxins. It's the inorganic toxins like mercury and air pollution, another big one. The California fires are gonna increase our risk for Alzheimer's, unfortunately. Second is the organic toxins formaldehyde, things like benzene, toluene, people who are exposed to high paraffin candle burning, people who are exposed to the World Trade Center, by the way, are at markedly increased risk for cognitive decline. And then the third group, which is the biggest group, is biotoxins. So as you indicated, we're exposed to these molds. We don't even know it. And there are the big five. So there's stachybotrys, penicillium, aspergillus, wallemia, and ketomium. Those are the big five. And so you want to know they're, what they're doing is they're fighting for their own survival. They've got to fight the bacteria because the bacteria grow faster than the molds. So what they do is they make stuff that kills the bacteria. That's where we get penicillin, of course. Unfortunately, they also make toxins that damage the nervous system, damage the immune system, damage your kidneys, can give you increases in cancer. It's really sad. And so there's a wonderful, simple test you can get, which comes through the EPA, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, so-called so ERMI, E-R-M-I, I'm Relative asking. Mold Index. Find out if you've got exposure to these specific species. You can also do one called Hurts Me Too, um, any of these things, just to get an idea. And then you can check your urinary mycotoxins, find out if you have high exposure to these various mold toxins, because they can absolutely be critical players in cognitive decline. There's just no question about it. And when we reverse that, when we now detox from those things, that's when people begin to get better.
1: Yeah. And stool testing for mycotoxins as well. You know, this is such a, so powerful. And ermy testing, you guys, if you have just to For our listeners too, ERMI testing, E-R-M-I, you can look that up, but it's different than often when you ask for mold testing in your home, they're doing something different. ERMI testing, you can order it, do it yourself, right, Dale?
0: Absolutely. So you can do things. There's a mycometrics is one way you can just go online. Mycometrics, they send you a little, like a little duster sort of thing. You can collect samples, send back to them, and they'll tell you what different species are there. Many mold species aren't making these toxins, but the big five that I mentioned, unfortunately, uh, can produce high levels of these toxins.
1: And also clients with candida, that brain fog. So you just explained that it crosses the blood brain barrier. And- um, Yet often for menstru- menstruating clients, we get a surge in, in uh, mold numbers in the, you know, right around the cycle, you know, right premenstrual. And that can also increase anxiety, depression, mood swings.
0: Absolutely. So this is, you know, we have to remember, this is a dynamic situation. Your brain and you as an organism have this ongoing, you're getting insults. What we want to do is make it so the insults aren't overwhelming your ability to deal with them. That's what's happening when you have cognitive decline. Let's get the insults down and the ability to deal with them up. And now you're on the right side. And just as Dean Ornish showed years and years ago with uh, atherosclerosis, when you're doing the right things, you're actually seeing a shrinkage. You're actually going the right direction. And we see the same thing with the brain. When you're doing all the right things, you're now laying down and keeping new synapses. When you're on the wrong side of that balance, you're just going to get worse, worse, worse.
1: So much powerful information and so much hope, right? Providing so many people with hope, whether you're genetically predisposed or not, right? We all have brains and we want to keep them as healthy as possible. And everything in your book, I mean, the end of Alzheimer's program is very practical and very funny, by the way. Thank you for putting, infusing your humor into it. I mean, even your oral chapter, what was it to um, the... (laughs)
0: The whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. Yeah, the no. whole
1: tooth and nothing but the tooth. Let me just name it. It's, it's just fun. It's like, what's next? What's he going to say next? You guys, I, I love that aspect. And plus so much hope. And everything you're, we're doing, like in this and the KetoFlex and the Keto Green, it is creating that, you know, it's, it's a natural vaccine to the pandemic the pandemic of Alzheimer's, the pandemic of immunoinsufficiency to really create resilience in in each of us. And we're never too young and never too old.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we can make Alzheimer's a rare disease with the current generation. There's no reason that that can't be done now. If people get on the appropriate prevention or reversal, in fact, that can happen. And, you know, our, our children should not be exposed to this stuff, They should make this such a rare disease that you you would rarely see this happening. Right now, it's, of course, the third leading cause of death in the United States. So there's a tremendous amount we can do before it bankrupts Medicare, for example. That's one of the upcoming impacts of Alzheimer's in the next 15 years. So there's so much we can do, and there's absolutely hope, no question about it.
1: Well I thank you. I'm um, just ask you a question. So as the girlfriend doctor always wanna know like how do you start your day?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Typically I just get getting up, getting some exercise. I I actually I like uh, organic psyllium husk. So first of all, I you know, I'm fasting from the night before and continue typically until around noon. So I'm typically doing an uh, 8-hour feeding window and 16 hours without. Uh, then try to get some exercise in, in the morning, do uh, organic psyllium husk. And then I typically do some, uh, some citrus water just for hydration, because that's, that's such an issue, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I don't do everything perfect. Uh, and one of the points of our research was that if you, once you get over a certain threshold, things are going in the right direction you don't have to do every single thing. Yes, biochemically, it's overwhelming. You know, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of things. But the good news is once you get over that threshold, things start to go in the right directions. So typically I have the organic psyllium husk. I have some citrus water. um, I do some exercise. And interestingly, if I've fasted, uh, for a long period, I may take a little ketone ester or ketone salts just to get my own ketosis up. Um, and you, know, you can notice, I mean, you know, whoa, it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of a rush. It's like, whoa, you're really sharp and things, you know, things are going very, very well. Now, in the, again, in the long run, you want to keep that to a minimum. I rarely use it, but it's good to have it there.
1: Yeah, I agree. All right. So my second girlfriend doctor question is, how do you keep healthy relationships or in your case, your romance sizzling hot?
0: Wow, you know, that's a great question. And I wrote in the book about actually someone that that I knew very well, who was a a professor, a real gentleman, just one of my favorite people, um, who when he began to get older, uh, started having fights with his wife, very much what you talked about, this physiological, they never did get divorced, but he actually hit her once, which had never happened for his entire, I mean, it was just completely out of character. And um, it turned out when he was evaluated, he was in the early stages of Lewy body dementia. And unfortunately, he succumbed to Lewy body dementia. Um, And, you know, I always had said to him, please let us tune things up for you. This was when we were first beginning to understand this. Let us do the right things for you. He said, no. He was a religious guy who said, I don't believe in that. I'm just going to, this is God's will. So he didn't do anything. And to be fair, we didn't know nearly what we know now. But it just showed how much relationships are impacted by physiology, just what you were saying before. So, uh, you know, so my wife and I, uh, and my wife is an integrative physician. So interestingly, over 25 years ago, when we were just starting our research, she said, you know, whatever you guys find in the lab is going to have something to do with basics, things like, you know, what you're eating and how you're sleeping. And of course, at the time, I said to her, no, I was very classically trained and I said, no, we're going to find one fold of one protein and we're going to develop a drug that just gloms on to that one fold and poof, everything's going to be fine. Of course, I should have listened to her 25 years ago. So, so the things that, you know, the things that we love to do, we actually like hiking. The the hills in Marin are just amazing Beautiful views of the water, beautiful views of San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, the bay. Um, We take our dog and get up in the hills. I really like doing that. I really like uh, playing. We play pickleball, go up and and, and hit it around and tennis. Great to hit and run around. And then, you know, we like to go out to dinner and we like to go out to movies and plays. And of course, this has all been shut down with COVID-19. So it has really, you know, what we liked to do. And of course, you mentioned hot. I mean, that has to do with, I won't even get into various clothing items and things. I'm not going to go there. But just to say, the things that we love to do, to go to dinner together, to go to a film together, to go to a play or something like that, or music is gone. And so, you know, we're very much now uh, sheltering in place that we get out, we still can get on a hike, which I think is really exciting and wonderful. And we can uh, do those sorts of things and having, you know, more home cooked meals and more wonderful organic. And she has a wonderful organic garden here, which is fantastic. Um, so all of those sorts of things um, that that we enjoy,
1: I think that's great. I think it's also so important to focus on our relationships, our closest relationships, because that is the the most powerful medicine is oxytocin, right? The most powerful yeah. hormone in our body, and for our brain, and for our mood, and for our relationships. So being able to really like create an emphasis in our life to keep our relationships strong and healthy, and knowing. What helps us do that is really powerful. I want to thank you so much for sharing so much of your wisdom today. I know my audience is going to hit replay and play this again and again and share it. Please tell our audience how we can get a hold of you and also your program that you have, really customized personalized medicine program that you also have.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And we've trained 1,500 physicians now. We have another 600 that are just waiting for this next one to come up. So we've got a lot of people out there that are practicing the protocol and you can find out all this if you go to drbredison.com or if you go to mycognoscopy.com because we recommend just as everyone knows, get a colonoscopy. Uh, and we've heard so much about this, especially with poor, unfortunate uh, Chadwick Bozeman, who just passed away uh, with colon cancer. So please get a colonoscopy when you turn 50, but please get a cognoscopy if you're 45 years or older. You can go to mycognoscopy.com, and then you can also look on uh, Facebook, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen any of those I can get in touch with us.
1: So yeah, you're on social social media everywhere. You've got Facebook, Instagram, then drbredison.com and mycognoscopy.com. I was checking out that website and you also have an app that goes with that program too. So I think it, just making it, Accessible until now, right? Until now, we have you know to get even a a a fraction, you know, a a fraction, a portion of this level care is to find someone who's had functional medicine, integrative medicine, bioidentical hormone medicine training. So, being able to have this resource and your book, where everywhere books are sold. The end of Alzheimer's and the end of Alzheimer's program. The latest release. I mean, it's really fabulous. Everyone needs this. Everyone needs to take a look at this. Get this uh, book on your on your bookshelf in your hands. Follow the the program, the concepts around it, and so many good things. Plus, you know the. The table of, of testing and the table of, of food choices, we're so in line. And also that you put in herbs, you put, you put maca in there too, which is, of course, my favorite superfood. All your work is tremendously well done. And, and still the Buck Institute research is ongoing.
0: So yeah, and I would be one more thing, which is that please everybody get on prevention. Let's make this a rare disease. And so we just have released a new thing called Precode for prevention of cognitive decline. Recode is for reversal of cognitive decline. And so Precode just came out. If you go to myprecode.com, you'll be able to see this. And this is for people who are asymptomatic and want to get on prevention. And if no surprise, the prevention is simpler than the reversal. So it's relatively simple to do, but gives you some optimal approaches. And so as far as the buck is, so now I'm emeritus at the buck. I was the, the founding president there, but now I'm emeritus because we've now moved from the fruit flies and the mice and the cells to humans. And so that this was always the hope that we would understand the neurodegenerative process in enough detail that we could actually translate this. So it has to say the best thing about this has been seeing people get better, having wonderful emails and wonderful phone calls and reports from people who have gotten better. It's just been great. And let's take this so that the whole world, we reduce the global burden of dementia. That's the key.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I agree with you. And the fact, very emphatically, a reversal of Alzheimer's, right? But often people get a diagnosis and then like, I got to, you know, I, it's just going to get worse from here. No, we can reverse this condition and just improve, improve our overall health for us, for our family, for those where we care about in our life. And, and I like what you said to create that this becomes a very rare, a rare occurrence. So- Thank you so much for all your time today. This has been very, very, very powerful.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Anna.
1: I know that was a really powerful discussion with Dr. Dale Bredesen, author of The End of Alzheimer's Program, and how important this concept is, getting into ketosis on a regular and frequent basis detoxing our bodies, addressing all aspects of our health, you know, following the this concept of creating more insulin sensitivity and as it relates to our brain, as it relates to our neurologic and our neuroendocrine system at any age. So, you know, all my Keto Green followers, it's like, okay, step it up a notch. We got to do this. And definitely even following the Keto Green approach, read this book, The End of Alzheimer's Program is KetoFlex twelve three plan, Plan. And just the other aspects he brings into it with the heavy metal testing and the oral health and toxin exposure, and it can affect all of us in our lives, someone we know and someone we care about. Man, he said so many good things that this creates an energetic emergency. I love that. I love the concept of how we talked about hormones with also adding detox as one of the benefits for progesterone. And, and continuing to create a lifestyle of learning new things. As we learn new things, we create, you know, neuroplasticity in the brain. It's exercise for the brain to keep challenging ourselves to learn new things. And if we're struggling, you know, we definitely want to start this preventive plan. So, Dr. Bredesen, he has mycognoscopy.com, myprecode.com, everything at his website. Uh, drbredesen.com. And of course, add this to your library. Add, you know, if you don't already, Keto Green 16 and add the End of Alzheimer's program to your library. I look forward to your questions because I know there was so much information here. Please email in your questions to me. You know, respond to this email. If you've received, you're on my email list. You can respond to any one of my emails add a comment or question or email us at team at team at so i look forward to hearing from you please share this episode and thank you thank you for being part of our world our community and the girlfriend doctor and i look forward to talking with you next time so bye for now